0: Hallo zusammen, wir sind Kim und Katrin vom Podcast Starke Frauen. Und anlässlich des internationalen Podcast-Tags möchten wir mit euch die Podcasts teilen, die uns inspirieren und inspiriert haben. Der Podcast, der mich in die Podcast-Welt einführte, ist This American Life von Chicago Public Radio mit dem legendären Ira Glass. Wahnsinn Storytelling. Oh cool. Und bei mir war das Jenna Katscher mit Gold Digger Podcast, der schon seit November 2016 existiert, äh, zu den Themen Branding und Marketing. Das ist definitiv der Podcast alles gesagt von der Zeit. Ich liebe es total, wie Christoph Armend und Jochen Wegner sich Stunden Zeit nehmen. Nämlich so lange, bis der Gast sagt, jetzt ist wirklich alles gesagt. Äh, Eintauchen äh, in Themen, wirklich großartig. Macht total Spaß. Ich möchte noch einen verderben weiblichen Humor empfehlen. Das ist Good for You von Whitney Cummings. Und wenn jemand politische und wirtschaftliche Themen einfach aufbereitet haben möchte, dann empfehle ich heute Wichtig mit Michelle Abdoulaye. Hier müssen wir auf jeden Fall ein paar nennen für Female Empowerment, oder? Absolut, absolut. Einmal unser eigener starke Frauen. <laughs> how to Hack mit der wunderbaren Tijen Onaran. Dann Stern die Boss mit Simone Menne. Und last but not least the Guilty Feminist mit Deborah Frances White. Was zum Lachen und Weinen. Sehr, sehr schön. Genau.
1: Good morning Chris, how are you doing? Morning Lester, I'm in mean, good shape. Yourself?
2: Excellent. Let's jump straight into it. Some of the messages have already started coming through. I'm going to start with Cheryl, who was the earliest to message. This was way before nine o'clock. And Cheryl asks, um, good morning, vitamin D. um, Do we get vitamin D? Where do we get vitamin D? uh, If the sun is shining through the window, do we get vitamin D, even if we're outside in the shade?
1: Hello, Cheryl. The answer is vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, and the proper chemical name is 125 dihydroxycolycalciferol. And you can get this from two sources. One, you eat something that's got vitamin D in it. This could be a pill, a vitamin pill, or it could be something like oily fish, which has made the vitamin D and got it in it. The other source is your own natural human solar panels, which are your skin. Because when UV rays hit the skin, they penetrate the skin and they interact with cholesterol and they produce 7-dehydrocholesterol and that is the precursor molecule for the production of vitamin D and it converts the 7-dehydrocholesterol into cholecalciferol which then visits your kidneys and your liver to have the 1 and the 25 Hydroxy groups added to make one twenty five dihydroxy curly calciferol, which is active vitamin D and is a critical vitamin because it encourages the uptake of calcium from your gut, so you boost your dietary intake into your body of calcium and that helps to maintain a strong healthy skeleton.
2: Interesting second question, yeah, and, I, and I've heard and I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while. The person asks, Is lab grown protein vegan?
1: <laughs> well in some respects it is but it depends on how you grow it if you grow cells in a dish then say those cells are animal cells then those animal cells have come from an animal originally and therefore i would say if i was vegan and i was growing those cells in a dish and i was using various growth sera derived from animals that would be non-vegan but we can make very exciting, very useful proteins in plant cells these days and so it's perfectly possible to engineer plant cells to produce large amounts of proteins and those proteins, or or not just animal cells but fungi as well, things like Quorn, single cell protein are a form of yeast, a filamentous fungus which can be grown in the lab dish, they produce large amounts of nutritious protein, that's entirely vegan and you don't need to supplement those with any kind of animal growth factors or sera, so they'll grow quite happily in the dish so that would be perfect perfectly reasonably vegan
2: let's go to a quick voice note now of course you can call in and speak and answer and pose your question directly to dr chris 056. and let's have a listen
3: um from komiki i was have a question for the naked scientists um we all know that there's um mammals in the sea that are normally on the surface but some of them can dive an astonishingly 200, 300 metres deep. And how is it possible that they are not um, affected by the pressure in the deep? They are not deep-sea creatures that have no skeleton or something. But how come that they are not affected? Thank you so much.
1: Chris. Some of these animals don't just dive 300 metres. They dive more than a kilometre and elephant seals that live down in Antarctica can dive to stupendous depths, and so not just dive to stupendous depths, as can whales. They can stay down there for enormous lengths of time. Obviously, they've evolved to do that, and whales, actually the closest living relative of a whale is a hippo, would you believe, and um, you can tell that genetically, because if we look in the genomes of whales, you can find various genetic signatures which are in identical places in whales ...and hippos, which is why Darwin, when he saw a hippo for the first time, said, it's almost like a whale. And that's why whales' uh, tails go up and down, rather than side to side like a fish, because whales are mammals, of course. But by having a life in the water, they have adapted over thousands to millions of years to become incredibly well adapted to that environment... This includes being able to dive to very great depths and stay submerged for extremely long periods of time. How do they do it? Well, One of the things that they do is to blow out most of the air they have in their lungs, but they have got a big vascular volume, so they've got a big reserve of oxygen. As they dive, they suppress their heart rate and their metabolism shifts down, which reduces the rate at which oxygen is is consumed, because they're not breathing compressed air, they were breathing air at the surface, they are at much lower risk of something like the bends, which a scuba diver is at risk from. We all know that if a, a scuba diver breathing compressed air comes up too quickly, they can get the bends, which is where dissolved gases, including nitrogen, can suddenly evolve out of solution when the pressure drops as you surface. And this can cause bubbles and blockages in blood vessels. But that tends to happen more if you've got compressed gas in your lungs, which is driving more nitrogen to dissolve in the bloodstream. If you've emptied your lungs largely and you are breathing atmospheric pressure, air, which is the breath you took at the surface before you dived, then that's much less likely to happen. And the animals also stage their diving. So they'll go down quite fast, but then as they come up, they come up, relatively slowly over a longish period of time, and this reduces the risk of dissolved gas bubbling out of solution and causing blockages in blood vessels. But it can happen whales do occasionally get the bends we know this because we have found skeletons from whales and you can see what are called osteonecrotic lesions in the bones of the whales these are holes in the bones where there would have been a chunk of bone which got starved of blood supply because a bubble formed in a blood vessel there. We think that tends to happen more if the animals become scared or frightened underwater which can happen because of things that we do. When people do for instance seismic surveys and make shocks and rumbling noises underwater it can scare the animals and force them to surface too quickly But bottom line because they have adjusted their physiology they breathe they blow out their air they slow down their heart rate and their metabolism shifts down and they they just are submerged for long periods of time because they're adapted to do so they don't have a problem staying under for that long and they're able to access a food supply which are deep dwelling animals like giant squid and so on which would be off-limits to animals that live further up in the water column. So as a result, by evolving to be able to do that, they can get food they otherwise wouldn't be able to access, and that mm. makes them healthier.
2: Chris, on, on the point of, of knowing which animals are related to others, you've been to Cape Town before, you've probably been up, up Table Mountain, I have. you probably know the little rock hyrax the, I did, yeah. The, the, I
1: got scared witless when I first. I nearly said a rude word then. I got scared witless when I, I walked up um, because the queue for the um, cable car was far too long and it was a hot day. So I thought, I'll just walk. And uh, then I discovered quite how far it is. But um, yes, when I first saw one of those hierarchies, I thought, what the hell is that? Uh, yeah, but they're, they're quite cute, really, aren't they? Once you once you get used to seeing them pop up here and there, they're, they're quite cute, really. Do you know what's the closest uh, living relative to, to the Hyrex? Probably an elephant. Yep.
2: It's the elephant, and how do
1: we know that? Yeah, well, we know this, actually, that the elephant family is is quite a big family, and it ranges, obviously, from big elephants at one end of the scale, which are massively bodied, down to these much smaller animals at the other end of the scale. But the clue is in their genetics, because when we look at the genetic structure of anything, whether it's a jellyfish, a herpes virus, or an elephant, you will find that there are certain genes organised in certain ways in relation to each other, and in terms of the sequence of those genes. And so if you then go looking across the animal kingdom for animals that have similar structures and organisations to their genomes, you know depending upon how similar they are, that they must at some point in time have been more or less closely related. And so you can work out therefore what the evolutionary family tree of a particular group of animals is because you can find structures which become less and less related as the animals become less and less related in their genomes. And so we can use genetics to build family trees, not just of heredity, but in terms of, of who evolved into what, and based on how different they are genetically, roughly when that happened. Mm.
2: Julie in Durbanville has called in, oh, 0214460567. Oh, good morning, Julie. Morning. Hi. How's everybody? All
3: good. Chris is listening. Hi, Chris. Um, I have a quite a simple question. Um, I have a lot of white towels, and when I bleach them, they go yellow. Why would that be...
1: Oh, hi, Julie. Uh, I haven't the foggiest. Um, don't know. It depends. <laughs> the, it, it's, I mean, when, when we put bleach on things, bleach turns things white because it bleaches, hence the word, the pigments which are in the surface of something. To look white... a a substance or a surface has to reflect all of the light that hits it. If it looks any particular colour, it is because it is not reflecting certain colours of the spectrum which changes its colour. So there must be something that the bleach is doing to either... Whatever colorants are in your fabrics already or what's already in them, it's obviously having some kind of reaction, which is making them look less white. Now, one possibility is, of course, that the washing powders contain whitening agents. That's not bleach. What they craftily do is add chemicals to the washing powder, which then get embedded into the fabric and have the effect of reflecting all of the different colours of the rainbow, which, when you look at all the different colours of the rainbow, they look white. So when, in the eponymous words of one famous washing powder things look whiter than white it is because they are reflecting more light and making themselves look white so it may well be that your bleaching agent is in fact interacting with one or more of the chemicals which are naturally in your fabrics and robbing them of of one of the or or changing the chemicals a bit so that it's robbing it of one of the groups of wavelengths that would reflect off and make it look white but I, i don't know precisely what laundry or linen you're referring to so i can only speculate that that's one possible reason
2: Thanks so much for that, Julie. Here's a question that's just come up on the WhatsApp line. Um, uh, what is your view on glyphosate, better known as Roundup, used as a herbicide? Uh, and does its uh, residue, uh, is it get, does it get taken back, taken up in an animal consuming a vegetable or fruit? Uh, Chris? Uh,
1: well, look, the bottom line is that there it's horses for courses here. Under certain circumstances, certain things used responsibly are incredibly good at achieving something that we need to achieve. But that is not the same as saying we should, because we can, just use things with abandon. A good sort of medical equivalent to this is antibiotics. We've got antibiotics in medicine that will kill everything. And they're brilliant and they save loads of lives. But if we put everybody on them, there would be enormous consequences, economic consequences, but also very quickly we would we would damage the microbial flora of the average person and that would have consequences. We would also drive very rampant resistance to that particular antibiotic so eventually it would stop working for everybody and there would therefore be consequences downstream. Nothing that you do is without consequences. So if we put things into the environment that are incredibly powerful things, that live, stick around for ages and can build up in food chains, there can be consequences. So it's really important that whatever we do, we do it in a way that's responsible, we understand what the impact of what we're doing is going to be and we take as many steps as possible to minimise it and mitigate it and we do not go down the path of storing up trouble for tomorrow because... Otherwise, we will have to clean up tomorrow's mess as well as yesterday's mess. And that makes the pile of mess that we've hidden under the carpet much, much bigger. So a roundabout way of saying that you can do anything you want as long as you do it with minimal impact or no impact. And you've thought about all these things and making sure that there aren't going to be consequences. And if there are going to be long-term consequences, then we really must not do it. Because at the end of the day, these these things will store up big trouble for tomorrow. Mm.
2: Let's go to May in Greenpoint May we usually don't take medical related questions because we encourage you to go see your GP your doctor but we are very intrigued about a burning tongue. What's your question to Dr. Chris?
3: Well Dr. Chris my friend uh, about 18 months ago just out of the blue chronically developed this constant burning tongue and she has lost her sense of taste. Uh, She has, uh, you know, consulted with various um, medical people, but we're just wondering if if you perhaps knew what direction she could go, if you could point in the right direction to try and solve this problem. Mm may of course we encourage your friend to, to to seek
2: the opinion of of her doctor but we were just so intrigued by the concept of a burning tongue chris
1: when you say burning tongue mate, do you mean as in if i put a big healthy helping of chili on her tongue that's what it feels like or is there something else yes, going on
3: yes her tongue is constantly burning and um, she she doesn't feel very well afterwards you know this but this is almost constant now it's Sort of developed over over time. Mm. It was occasionally now it's virtually constant, and she has consulted, but it, it's constant, almost constant. And um, she was a bit too shy to phone in. I'm speaking on her behalf.
1: Yeah, so much. I mean, I think there's a range of things that could do this, and and they, you know, really the sky's the limit. And without knowing the background history. The past medical history and a chance to look at your friend, it's very difficult for me to speculate in a way that's ethical, let's say, and I'm not her doctor after all. I would say she needs properly investigating because something like that is not normal. Something that comes on, if it comes on, especially if it comes on abruptly, having previously been perfectly okay, and it doesn't go away, it's persisting and it's worsening something must be causing that to happen and that thing may well be reversible and that means that she could Mm. enjoy a much higher quality of life if it can be fixed. But Mm. in order to find out what it is, it needs properly investigating. So I I would refer her back straight away to go and get someone to take a look at this and take a proper history, find out the Mm. background to this and see what we could do about it.
2: So, So let's go down this route, Chris, of what is then the reaction, for example, of capsicum of peppers, of chilies that reacts with our taste buds and sends the message to our brain that something is burning, something is not right. What is that reaction? When we eat a chili, a pepper, um, what happens?
1: Your body is covered in sensory nerve fibers, which signal different things. And there are nerve fibers for fine touch and itch and stroking, for ke- cold. And also for heat. And the mouth is no exception. You've got cold and heat signaling nerve endings in your mouth. And they are in two different classes. So they they actually some signal cold and some signal hot. Chili peppers contain the chemical capsaicin. And this activates the ones that signal heat. And the way it does so is it locks onto a specific chemical docking station, a receptor, which is on the end of the nerve fibre, which is called TRPV1, TRPV1. It's after the vanillin receptor 1 type. And when capsaicin locks onto that structure, it forces the nerve fibre to fire off a barrage of impulses. So what you end up with is a nerve fibre that would normally fire off a barrage of impulses in response to high temperature now starts to fire off a barrage of impulses as though it's being burned, but the temperature hasn't changed. So it fools you into thinking something is burning and hot when it's not. So the ambient temperature of your mouth then to the nerve fibre feels like a burning hot temperature. The opposite's also true, and you've probably done the experiment where you've cleaned your teeth and then taken in a fast breath and your mouth feels cold, Mm -hmm. or you suck a mint and your mouth feels cold. And this is because menthol, which is in toothpaste, it's in mints, various things, activates cold nerve fibres. They have a receptor on the end of the nerve fibre which is called the TRIP-M8 receptor, and when that fires off, it makes nerve cells more active at temperatures than they should be, when they would normally become more active with a drop in temperature. So in other words, only when your mouth is really cold should those nerve fibres be firing off, but they are fooled into thinking your mouth is colder than it is, so as a result you are fooled into thinking the mint tastes cold. If you stick a thermometer in someone's mouth when you either feed them chilli or feed them mints and toothpaste actually the, the the mouth temperature does not change, but the person's interpretation mm. of their mouth temperature is that it has changed it's a It's a trick of the nervous system it's effectively mm. a sensory illusion predeville
3: good morning hello yes i I'm, I'm just wanting to know if when your feet um, if your feet when you get older do they change in shape because I've just got new slippers. <laughs> and when I put them on on the, on the right, if the left and the right side, they fall off my feet. So I'm um, now I wear the right one on the uh, on. The, I'll, I'll wear the right shoe. The right one on the left foot and the left foot on the right foot. <laughs> I, I follow. I don't know if I I'm follow.
1: making myself no, I, I follow. Uh, well, the answer is, uh, Freda, that that actually despite gaining enormous amounts of weight on other parts of our body, really our feet and hands don't deposit fat because when we gain weight or lose weight, we are gaining or losing fat, subcutaneous fat. Our feet are already fairly well endowed with subcutaneous fat on our soles because that provides a cushion to walk on. Our palms also have that to support our hands when we grip things, for example. But that fat doesn't seem to be added to or lost at the same rate that it's added to or lost in other parts of the body. As we get older, though, you do find that the amount of subcutaneous fat on the body does drop off, especially if people don't eat as much as they previously have. And the other thing that changes with age is that the skin becomes thinner and we lose connective tissue, we lose collagen and elastic tissue called elastin. And as a result, the skin becomes thinner as well. These combined factors can mean that there is a subtle change in in foot and hand shape with age. But at the same time, there are also changes that happen in any joint in the body where you can get arthritis. And if you have arthritis called osteoarthrosis, you can deposit new bits of bone around those joints. And so you, you will see people who've got arthritic hands, for example, having knobbly bits on the sides of the... bones in their fingers. The same can happen in feet and also people who wear shoes a lot, especially high heels may get what are called bunions which is where uh, the the medical term is hallux valgus where the big toe bends outwards towards the outside edge of your foot Mm -hmm. and as a result you you get a lump on the inner edge of your foot and, and that's a bunion and so that can also mean that people do find some shoes are less comfortable when they're older because their feet have changed shape a bit.
2: Frida, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to a quick voice note. 0725671567. Let's have a listen.
3: Hello, this is Gisela here. I two answers. The first one is, yeah, the hyrax relating to elephant one of the um, things that they still, you know, uh, keep from having split from the elephant is that they have a very long gestation period. They they give birth only after eight months, which is quite weird. Then the lady with the bleach, um, she's put too much bleach in. That's when it goes yellow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thanks so much for that. Let's go to a, another a voice note. Let's do double four double o. Johannes.
3: Hi, Dr. Chris, it's Richard in Plumstead. Um, What makes a battery rechargeable? I'm thinking specifically for kids' toys, which must uh, result in a lot of uh, dumped batteries, uh, the non-rechargeable ones. Are they that much cheaper to produce? But what actually makes a battery rechargeable?
1: Hi, Richard. The way a battery works is that it's a chemical reaction, and you have one chemical that is more reactive in one direction than the other chemical. So, one chemical wants to give away its electrons, negative charges, and the other chemical wants to soak up those electrons. And you separate them with an electrolyte and you connect one to the other via a circuit. So, as the electrons flow round the circuit, you're extracting some energy from them in the process, they flow back to the other part of the battery that wants electrons. And you produce a chemical change in the battery with the thing that wants to get rid of the electrons changing from, uh, say, a metal into a salt and the thing that was wanting to soak up electrons changing from one particular salt into a different kind of material. And depending upon the nature of that chemical reaction, it can either be reversible or non-reversible. Now most mass-produced batteries which are for consumer use and are just to be, be there available, cheap and reliable, are not rechargeable because they use particular composition, structure, fabrication of the battery that means that the chemical reaction goes in one direction only and you can't reverse it, you can't send the current back the wrong way and put the Uh, electrons back into the thing that gave them away and rob them off of the thing that soaked them up because you can't make that process happen safely or efficiently but with a rechargeable battery the components of the battery are carefully chosen so that the battery does donate and receive electrons in a reversible way that's also safe and it can do it repeatedly because the other thing is every time you charge and discharge a battery you do damage it a bit and over time that damage builds up so the battery's capacity is lost and that's why your phone stops staying charged up for so long after a while of using it um, all batteries degrade with time but they carefully choose the structure the composition and the materials in the battery so that they can tolerate um, repeat cycles of charging and discharging but also the chemical reaction is reversible which many of these consumer batteries are not
2: as always when we get to three minutes to the top of the hour all of a sudden calls lined up but I'm rather going to go to a question that's coming on text uh, uh, Chris uh, if you have a question get calling in as early as possible so I'll leave it to the whatsapp line here uh, question is why are the warmer waters in tropical beaches turquoise in colour and seemingly clean and the colder waters along most beaches they're darker in colour and uh, they're murkier that's from KAPS in Athlone Chris
1: Well, what makes the water murky is the amount of material floating around in the water water is its uh, by its nature transparent uh, or translucent i should say because it does absorb red light more than blue light which is why the sea looks blue because it soaks up the red light and doesn't reflect that back off but the material that makes it look green is going to be plant material algae other solids other organic material and, and as a result of that being present in the water, it, it changes the colour of the water. So it's not exclusively the case that you'll get tropical water, which is crystal clear, and uh, colder water, which isn't. There's plenty of cold water around Antarctica. But it's going to come down to the amount of nutrient that's in the water, how much uh, plant life it can sustain in terms of, of algal content and so on. And therefore that will have an effect on, on the colour of the water. And that's it
2: for this week. Dr. Chris Smith will do it all again next week, Friday, 9.30. I hope you have a great weekend.
1: And you. Looking forward to it.
0: Das Leben kann hektisch sein. Warum nicht dem Alltag entfliehen und in die magische Welt von Evermerge eintauchen? Evermerge ist ein magisches Land, das mit jeder Entdeckung größer und besser wird. Werde ein Merch Master. Baue und sammle einzigartige Gegenstände oder verschönere deine eigene wundersame Welt. Im Land von Evermerge gibt es immer etwas zu tun. Evermerge. Jetzt kostenlos im
3: App Store herunterladen.